here and as you read 1 Corinthians during the week that God would just really make us alive to you. Today, our theme, uh, we're calling it Wise Up. Uh, Paul's writing to this church, these Christians, and he's telling them to be wise. And today from chapter 4, we want to see that God tells us to be wise about who you are. Who are you? Now, when you're a kid, you know, you have some, uh, some dream probably, you know, most boys, you know, maybe they want to be a, a Super Bowl quarterback or a home run hitter or whatever. And, and a girl, I was never a little girl, so I don't know, but I guess, you know, maybe being a ballerina or a princess, real life princess or something. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I really wanted to be a great athlete. And I was, after all, the home run champion of the Little League in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I just want you to know that. So I aspired. I thought, well, surely I'm going to be a great athlete then. But it did, that didn't happen. And I also wanted to be a great singer. But I found out that I really wasn't given those gifts. I wasn't created to have those. And we want to talk about being wise about who you really are. You know, there's this prevailing philosophy. Uh, it was probably said in the majority of graduation ceremonies. You can be whatever you want to be. Now, is that true? Am I going to be a Hall of Famer? No, you know, there are some things that were not creative. You can be a lot. I'm not, uh, you know, downplaying ambition and working hard to accomplish. But, friend, there are some things you can't be those no matter how much you want to be. You were not created for them. Now, in the church of Corinth, the church, if you rank the church of Corinth against all the other churches mentioned in the New Testament, they were probably the least spiritual. They were probably the ones with the most problems. They had all kinds of conflict. And one of the big ones, he refers to it several times, is the church was, was split. It was divided into two camps primarily. There was the camp that was loyal to Paul, who had founded the church, and, and then there was a camp that was now loyal to uh, Apollos, who'd come after Paul. And, and the church was splitting apart. And do you know why? Well, see, we all have our favorites in terms of personalities or speakers or presenters. or Okay, yeah, that, that's fine. But the problem was that they forgot who Paul and Apollos were. And the bigger problem was they'd forgotten who they were. And that's what we want to talk about today. Chapter 4, verse 1. So, Paul says, look at Apollos and look at me as what? As mere servants. And the word literally is an under rower. Mere servants of Christ who've been in charge, put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Again, the word is under rowers. And what Paul is saying, one of the things he's saying is, that, listen, we're not captain of the ship. We're under rowers and we need to be following the orders of the captain and we need to be working together, pulling together instead of pulling against each other. Verse 2, now a person who's put in charge as a manager, the second word, literally a steward, and we'll talk about that, that kind of person must be fruitful. And so Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying this, listen, if you're a Christian, you are servants of Christ. One of uh, my favorite relatives was Uncle Merlin. He was born during the Depression. He had to quit school when he was 14 and start working. Uh, he took every job, any job that was available. He had every imaginable kind of job. 
And one of his big goals was to resume his education. And as an adult, he did that, and he became an engineer at General Electric. But he told me about all his jobs. And I said, well, which one was your favorite job of all time? He said, well, you know, to be honest, it was being a butler. I'm going, being a butler? You know, the guy who just has to ride, you know, drive the boss around and, and do all kinds of jobs and chores? Yeah, he said, I loved it. I got to live in a mansion. I get to drive expensive cars. I, I got to eat his, eat his sumptuous meals. I had all the privileges of being a fabulously wealthy man. He said, that was my favorite job. He said, but I just want to tell you, Ronnie, he says, nobody wants to be a servant. Nobody wants to be a servant. You know, and who would want to be a servant of someone who doesn't care about them? Well, sure, of course not. But friend, we are servants of Jesus Christ. And he loves you more than you love you. And Jesus Christ, who wouldn't want to be a servant of the Son of God, of the Messiah, the one anointed by God as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's going to rule heaven forever and ever. I mean, what could be better than being his servant, living in his mansion? Now, if being a servant or an under rower, okay, he's the captain. If, if that still doesn't sound important to you, maybe the second word will. Paul says, we, if you're a Christian, you're a manager, or literally the word is steward. Now, what's a steward? It's not the person in the airplane who gets your soft drink, okay? If you're a Christian, you're a steward. Steward means one who manages another's wealth, okay? The well, fabulously wealthy guy is too important or maybe not uh, trained well enough to manage his own financial affairs, and he turns it over to somebody who really is. One who manages his master's wealth. And friend, God owns it all. I mean, he created it. He owns it all, but he loans it to you for you to invest wisely and well. Friend, you're a manager of Universe Inc., biggest corporation ever, all right? You're a manager. You're a steward. You're an heir with the Son of God of all the riches of God. So Paul starts this. He's telling us to be wise to who we are instead of trying to be who you want to be, but you can't because you weren't created for it. You weren't designed for that. Paul's saying if you want to be wise, be who you are, and that'll save you from being what others want you to be. Instead of trying to be someone who achieves temporary success, but long-term failure. So this morning, from chapter 4, if you, if you are wise, if you wise up, to who you really are. Paul says that's going to save you from three terrible things. And the first one is this. It'll save you from reacting when you're criticized or judged. Now, uh, I'm going to say something profound now. And uh, unfortunately, I have to announce it when I am because people never realize it's profound. Okay, but I just want you to know. Are you ready? Okay, okay, here, here goes. You are not who you think you are. Let me just give you a little illustration. You see, when, when we make a really good decision, we think we're a genius. But when we make a 
core decision just blows up in our face. We think we're an idiot. Now, which are you? <laughs> you can't be a genius and an idiot, okay? And the truth is, you probably aren't a genius of an IQ of 170, and you're certainly not an idiot, all right? But see, how we feel at any given moment about what's happening around us, that distorts our image of reality and who we really are. You are not who you think you are. Second, you are not who others think you are. When I was about nine, I remember very clearly, I was, it was summer and I was walking around the house with just my shorts on. And my mother said, Ronnie, one day you are going to win the Mr. America contest. Hey, this is a moment of transparency. You don't have to be real cruel about it, okay? Uh, she, I know my mom's a little not entirely objective, but we'll go on. Oh, never mind. All right. No, here's the truth. You are not really as great as your mother thinks you were. You're not as great as your dog thinks you are, okay? They just love you. They see no faults in you, okay? You are not who others think you are. I'm really sorry about that. I know that hurts your ears. Okay. You're not who you think you are. You are not who others think you are. Now, here's the third thing. You are not who you think others think you are. When you walk into a room... You're probably thinking, oh, I, I hope people think that, you know, I look nice. Or, you know, I hope that people think that I'm cool or, or something like that, okay? And see, the reality is we humans worry so much about what others think of us. And friend, do you know what they're thinking about you? Nothing. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. Am I good looking? Am I cool? So just get over that. You know, they're not thinking about you. So, if you're not who you think you are, if you're not who others think you are, are, if you're not who you think others think you are, who are you? You are who God created you to be. Paul came from a very influential family. He received the best education he could possibly have. He was very wealthy. He was becoming the most powerful person in Israel. For the first half of Paul's life, he thought he was a great earthly success. And then one day he got struck down by lightning by the Son of God, and he found out he was headed for eternal failure. And Paul found that he was not being who he was created to be. But he became so. He became a follower of Jesus. He became a servant. He became a steward of Jesus Christ. And you see, that delivered him from being consumed about what he thought others thought about him. And that's why in verse 3 he could say what he says. As for me... It matters very little 
I really don't care how I might be evaluated by you or by any other human authority. I, I don't even trust my own judgment. See, I'm not who I think I am. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who examines and decides our worth. So, friend, who really determines who you are and how well you're doing? Who's your judge? Paul says it's not others. It's not the court of public opinion. It's not even yourself. Verse 3, it is the Lord who judges me. So, therefore, verse 4, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he'll be the judge. So you don't have to. In fact, you better stop judging right now because you're trying to do God's job, and he doesn't like that. Don't you hate it when somebody does judge you or criticize you? That is just the most painful, hurtful thing. And you know what happens then? Well, we judge or we criticize them because they judge or criticize us. And that makes us feel good for just a little while, but not for long. And is that really good for us? Is criticizing and judging each other good at your job? Is it good in your family? Is it good with the body of Christ when we judge each other? God tells us, wise up. Be who you are in Christ Jesus. And that will save you from reacting when you get criticized or judged. Secondly, that will save you from judging others. You see, criticizing and judging, that's going to make you a negative, bitter person. Verse 5, let's go on. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each of us will receive our praise from God. Now, we're talking about judging. And people always have this discussion. Not judging doesn't mean that we should not be discerning. But there's a world of difference. Discernment is God telling us when someone is saying something that's wrong, not of God, not true. That's discernment. Judging is us putting someone else down because we think that'll lift us up. That's, that's a huge difference. God tells us to be wise and be who you are, and that'll save you from judging others. Let's move on to the third one. That'll save us from pride. Dear brothers and sisters, verse 6, I have a, used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud. See, and, the, and their pride was cloaked in, well, I'm proud of this guy, or I'm proud of, well, that's just really self-pride. You won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of the other one. You won't be pitting me against Apollos. We're not competitors. We're co-laborers for Christ. And the reality is that, that pride, very few people can see their own pride. We, we're just blind to it. But here in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians, we see some of the symptoms of pride. Now, what are the symptoms of pride? Well, in the Corinthian church, well, in our lives, one is cliques. It's, it's hanging out with people you like and who are like you. People who are worthy of your attention. 
Who is worthy of Jesus' attention? Those that others ignore. The lepers. The widows. The down and out. The tax collectors. The uncool. Those who weren't worthy of our attention. Who is worthy of our attention? Everyone. Who's not worthy? No one. Clicks. And see, clicks come when we think that those that are different from us are not important. And Paul tells us how wrong that is. Verse 7, what gives you the right to make such a judgment about someone else that they're not worth your time and your attention and your consideration? A second symptom, forgetting everything we have and are is a gift from God. He says in verse 6, what do you have that God hasn't given you? Verse 7, and if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? You think that you have already you already have, you, you think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. And see, the problems with pride is that, again, very few people, uh, very few of us can see it in ourselves. We have 2020 to, uh, vision with regard to the pride of others, but we're blind to our own. And the second thing is that pride makes us think that the only time we need God is when we're in trouble. But, but the time when you need God the most is when you don't think you need God at all. That's pride. What if God right now stopped making your heart beat? What if he stopped making air? Now the next several verses... They're a bit hard for us to understand because we don't live in the Roman Empire. But let me try to help you out uh, here. His, his readers would have understood. But he's, he goes on and he says this to the Corinthians. He says, you have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles. Some about the 12 disciples in himself. I think God's put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. And what's, what's he doing here? When Paul called himself and the other apostles a spectacle to the world, he used a, an image that the, those in the Roman Empire were all too familiar with. When the Romans defeated a foreign peoples, they would march the prisoners of war into the amphitheater where they'd be torn to shred by wild lions or, or dogs in front of a bloodthirsty crowd. And, and Paul used that graphic picture to describe what the world was doing to Paul's fellow apostles who were being slaughtered, stoned to death in the streets, burned at the stake. And as Paul wrote these words, I, I'm sure that his mind flashed back to when he stood there holding the coats of those that he had ordered to kill the first martyr, Stephen. He was responsible. And I'm sure that broke Paul's heart. So he's trying to wake up the Corinthian Christians of the fact that they were killing their church and each other. Now, verses 10 to 13 really, really get hard. And you know what I think Paul is? I think he's using some... Uh, some sanctified sarcasm. Okay, sometimes you use sarcasm to make a point, right? Okay, verse 10. Our dedication to Christ as apostles, that makes us uh, look like fools. Now, you claim to be so wise in Christ. 
we're weak. But you think you're so powerful. You were honored. We're ridiculed. Even now, we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present. What's he saying here? He's saying he was a fool. Paul was saying, I'm a fool according to the world. You see, had Paul remained a Pharisee, he might have become the most powerful and the, most, and the richest person in all of Israel. And people said Paul was a fool to throw all that away to become a follower of Jesus. I mean, how he could have been rich and powerful. He could have avoided the persecution that would come from following Jesus. When you get to heaven, I hope you'll ask Paul if the past 2,000 years of being with Jesus in heaven was worth everything that he gave up and being called a fool by the world. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador. He was shot to death with darts when he and his family, his team, excuse me, tried to take the good news of Jesus to a tribe that had never heard. Before his death, Jim Elliott wrote this, he is no fool who gives, who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Paul here, I mean, he's exercising tough love. He's using tough words to get, get across an important truth. He wanted to wake up his fellow believers in, in Corinth so that they would see that this pride was destroying them. Verse 14, I'm not writing these things to shame you, he says. I'm writing them to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, yet you only have one spiritual father. I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So I urge you to imitate me. Paul, see, was their spiritual father. He founded the church, and he loved them dearly. And then in verse 16, he says, imitate me. Imitate me. Why? Because God had delivered Paul from his pride before it destroyed him. And, and Paul's pleading with them to repent of their pride before it destroyed them. See, the, the danger is we don't think pride will hurt us. But Paul, but God says pride goes before a fall. God says pride is one of the seven abominations he hates because it destroys our relationships. It destroys our relationship with God and with each other. See, followers of Jesus Christ are humble. Because he was humble. Now, what's humility? It's not being a doormat. It's not letting everybody walk all over you. In fact, being humble takes a lot more strength than being proud. A lot more strength. Humility is actually strength under God's control. It, it's dependence upon God rather than ourselves. It's giving all the glory to God instead of boasting about what we have done. You see, pride is thinking, I don't need God until I get in trouble. Or I don't need God until I die. He finishes up, starting with verse 17. He says, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, you need help. 
So verse 17, that's why I have sent Timothy. He's on the way, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord. And he's going to remind you of how I follow Jesus Christ. I'm not leaving a camp. I'm following Jesus Christ, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. And some of you have become arrogant, thinking that I will not visit you again, but I will. I will come, and soon, if the Lord lets me. And then I'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. The kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It's living by God's power. So, which do you choose? Paul says, when I come, should I come with a rod to punish you? He's doing it figuratively. He he wasn't going to beat them literally with a rod. But should I come with a rod to punish you, or should I come with love and a gentle spirit? Because you've repented. Paul told them he was coming back to Corinth one day. And he asked them if they wanted him to come to punish them or to reward them. And friends, we close with this. God tells us that he's sending Jesus Christ back to his church, right? So God asks us, do you want Jesus Christ to come back to punish you for not following him? Or do you want Jesus Christ to come to love you and reward you for being a faithful follower, for being a faithful servant, for being a faithful steward? That's who you were created to be. That's who you are at the core of your being. That's who you are, not just for just this life of 70 or 80 years, but for all of eternity. That's what you were created for, designed for, and that's what you live for. Wise up. Wise up about the privilege of being a servant of Jesus Christ. Wise up about the privilege of being a steward of all God's riches and being a a joint heir with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wise up. Father, I just ask that you'd help us because it's so easy to fall into traps as Christians of of thinking when we're we're wise when we're not, of thinking that we're humble when we're proud, of of judging others, of criticizing, of, of getting into camps, of wanting our way instead of your glory. God, we just cry out, help us, Lord. Lord, as I read these things, I know that some of these things are true in in my life some days. And God, I don't want them. I want to be what you want me to be, what you created me to be. God, come to us and help us. We want to wise up about the privilege of being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and a faithful steward of all God's riches. And we know that you'll help us. In Jesus' name.